Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 343, God's Bad Parenting Days. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And, you know, sometimes we get emails from people who say they're our fans, which is really nice to hear. But we're especially excited when we have the opportunity to have someone on and we are their fans. And so today's guest, a returning guest, is somebody who Lex and I are both great fans of, Alicia Joe Rabins. We primarily became her fans because of her work in music. Alicia Joe Rabins is the creator and performer of Girls in Trouble, an indie folk song cycle about women in the Torah. There are three albums and also study guides. You can check it all out at girlsintroublemusic.com. And Alicia Joe Rabins is so much more than a musician. And in fact, she has two new projects that were just released in the past few days. One of them is a book, and one of them is a movie. Well, the movie's already been out. It's been playing at film festivals, but now you can purchase and download and watch this movie at all the streaming services that you can imagine where you can buy and watch movies. So that is an extremely cool thing. We're going to talk about Alicia Joe Rabin's movie a little bit. It's called A Cottage for Bernie Madoff. We talked about it the last time Alicia Joe Rabin's was our guest on the podcast back in episode 188. And today we're primarily going to be talking about Alicia Joe Rabin's work, which has now been published as a book called Even God Had Bad Parenting Days, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for New Parents. But it represents the culmination of work she's been doing, thinking about the connections between Judaism and parenthood for the last decade or so. As the book jacket describes it, the book Even God Had Bad Parenting Days is a collection of touching, humorous, down-to-earth essays that offer new parents a way to find wonder, joy, and a sense of the sacred amid the clutter and intensity of family life. As a little more background, beyond all this work, Alicia Joe Rabins is an award-winning writer, musician, performer, and Torah teacher. She is the author of two previous poetry books. One is called Divinity School, which won the APR Honickman First Book Prize, and the other one is called Fruit Geode, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. So, Alicia Joe Rabins, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you on again. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, as I was telling you before we came on the show, you know, I was on a little bit of a journey through my uh, parenting memories as I was reading your book. I'm curious, though, when you think about creating something like this, to what extent do you think about who the audience for it is and what are their needs? And I guess, who is the audience for this book and what are their needs as, as you think about it? Well, I would describe this book as a book about early parenthood and Jewish spirituality. So, I mean, I was definitely imagining people who are either considering becoming parents in the sometimes very long process of figuring out how to become parents um, or in the early years of parenthood themselves, or people who love someone who is in that stage and maybe want to understand it in a different way. Um, I wrote these essays, you know, throughout my own experience of pregnancy, birth, and early parenthood. I was not literally writing during birth, but <laughs> before and after. It's very real. It's very, um, it's not particularly graphic, but it's very raw emotionally, I would say. And I felt so connected to just this moment in the human journey while I was writing it and while I was editing it. And so that's kind of who I imagine reading it. I think what I would say is I feel the way about my own art that I feel about my practice of teaching Judaism, which is like, I don't want to force it on anyone. I don't want everyone in the world to have required reading of my book or required knowledge about Judaism. I want to be a resource for people who are hungry for what I have to offer when I need something, when I need some beauty or some comfort or entertainment, distraction or wisdom and, you know, anything from HBO to the Torah <laughs> to parenting books <laughs> can offer that to me. You know, the, we have these sort of needs that arise in the moment. And I think that years around conception, birth, adoption, fostering, 
all of the different ways that we can end up in that situation. Those are years of great urgent needs for things that sometimes are no longer necessary in a week or a month or a year. These like absolutely, you know, burning questions of like, my child, you know, has a, my infant has a stuffy nose. How are they going to breathe? Because infants are obligate nose breathers, <laughs> you know, or, uh, these like really burning questions that, you know, literally two weeks later, the cold is gone and everything's fine. And some of them are more like spiritual. Some of them are medical. Some of them are, you know, as we begin to relive our own childhoods through the practice of parenting and um, begin to come to understand ourselves differently. So I think that's kind of, maybe it's in God, Goddess's hands to um, help this book find people who who could benefit from it at the moment. And that's certainly what I wish for it. So two things that I really liked about this book, and you can address one or the other of them mostly. You can ignore what I'll throw them both at you and take whichever of the two or both that you want. The first is what I felt as sort of a loose structure, which I'm a geek and I I always look at tables of contents and I try to get a sense of like if there's any hidden organizing principles, because often there actually are. And in this case, I saw five sections. The first of the five sections being called In the Beginning, which for somebody who works in Jewish life, you know, that that sounds like it's tied to the book Genesis, which starts with roughly In the Beginning. And then I saw that the second book... Uh, sorry, not the second book. That's me slipping into Torah zone. <laughs> the second section was called On the Journey, which I'm like, oh, like the second book of the Torah. They like leave Egypt and the, oh, on a journey. That makes sense. And then like I won't go down the whole list, but basically I gleaned that there is a sort of parallel. I don't want to make it sound like it's super word by word of the Torah. You find parenting par parallels. That's not what it is. But I thought that was cool because my takeaway from this as somebody who isn't a parent was partially like, huh, how do we do reads of the Torah or applications of the five books of the Torah to different realms of human experience? One of them, this book, is mapping that to parenting. Another could be mapping it to something else. And so that was just intriguing to me on the one hand. And then the other piece, which I don't want to say too much about because I want to hear you on this really, is... You had a lot of sadness in this book. I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like you're sad to be a parent. That, that's not at all the sense that you give. But you, to me, it was this beautiful honesty. I think there's a lot of pressure in the world to not voice the ways in which being a parent. And once again, I'm not one. I can't speak to this personally. But my sense is a lot of it's hard. And talking about the hardness gets you sort of dirty looks because it's like, well, you have this wonderful blessing in your life. Why are you focusing on the shitty parts? But you're really honest about parts that are really tough and even parts that you map to, to forms of death. And once again, I don't want to overstate it. That's not the overarching theme of the book. But basically, I'd love to hear from you on that structural piece on like the five books framework and also on the ways in which this is not just a happy-go-lucky meditation on what it is to be a parent. I really love talking to both of you. <laughs> I love your <laughs> questions. Okay. Structurally, I love that you picked up partially on, you know, the kind of allusion to the five books, but more specifically the underlying project of this book, which is really about reading the Torah and more broadly reading Jewish traditions and rituals and concepts through this specific lens of the years around early parenthood. And it began, actually, this, this book began during my, my own very early years of being a mother when I pitched Kveller, the you know parent, Jewish parenting website, on my idea of writing a Torah commentary through the eyes of a new mom. Because I thought, you know, I didn't grow up studying Torah, but I began studying Torah very seriously when I was 21. And ever since then, I had kind of gone through the yearly cycle. And I was 35 when I had Sylvia. So I had been about 14 times through this yearly Parsha cycle. And every time would reflect differently. You know, it, I would read it differently. I would find something new in it. And I just had this sense of like, wow, I am coming from a fundamentally different place right now. Like I am in a different existence than I was a year ago. And I'm so curious what the Parsha, the Torah portion is going to look like from this vantage point. And so that was how this book 
began. A fellow named it Mom and Terry. <laughs> and you can still read a bunch of those early That's versions. That's incredible. Shouts to Feller. <laughs> yes, Hell yeah. Thank you, Feller. And it was such an honor. And my amazing editor, Molly Tolsky, along with others there, um, really, you know, I, I'm a poet by training. So this was my first time really writing prose. And I was really learning on the job in this early edit. So I'm so grateful for the, the process and for their faith in me. And it, it really grew out of a very personal practice of doing exactly what you are reflecting back, Lex, which I'm so grateful for your noticing, which is the prismatic effect of experiencing Jewish traditions from different parts of life, different moments. Um, and so how do I read it through this moment? Like how does God as a, you know, constantly referred to as metaphorically as a parent in our tradition, how is that different now that I am a parent? <laughs> you know, what? how does my understanding of what it means to be a parent? And now that I'm not only the child asking the parent for things, <laughs> but also the parent being asked for things and given things and challenged and pushed. That's one small example. Um, it was important to me to try to strike a balance between the kind of accessibility that I wanted in, you know, they grew out of these short personal essays that are about 800 words long, really bite-sized, something that somebody could read between <laughs> chores, you know, between these moments or while nursing or just kind of in these quiet moments, um, I, which I think leads into your second question. I mean, as an artist, I really believe in embracing the complexity of human experience and getting over my own resistance as well as our cultural resistance as kind of people raised in a capitalist society to difficult emotions, difficult experiences, right? So like there, there's like, I think there's something in us and then also something culturally that is like, no, 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 don't want to think about it. Don't want to do it. I have to get out of this difficult place. You know, <laughs> there's that impulse. And then the more I live, the longer I live on this earth, the more I believe that the holding together of the joy and the sorrow and of the kind of beauty and difficulty allowing the complexity and paradox of the fact that their coexistence and that that kind of ongoing relationship between what we call positive, what we call negative, what we call happy and what we call sad, that there's something essential in the comprehensiveness of it. And so in the art that I make and in the spiritual education that I take part in and, you know, the teaching that I do, and certainly in this book, and even in my own narratives about my own experience, I over and over experience the sort of resistance to the difficulty and then kind of relaxing into it and being very glad that I relaxed into it in order to be able to kind of learn what's there and come out on the other side, not to a place where everything's perfect, but to a place where I have a deeper understanding. So it's very important to me to include that in the book. It said a lot that, you know, it's very important for there to be Jewish commentary, Torah commentary from populations of people who weren't invited to give commentary before. We often talk about, you know, women as opposed to men. But it's interesting, like, as I've been listening to what you're talking about, like moms as opposed to dads. And a momentary becomes a very interesting notion. And specifically in your book, it struck me a lot how you would see connections between the experience of a mother and how God might have experienced the creation. It also put me in the mind of our conversation with Joy Layden, who really talked about God as someone that particularly relates to trans folk because, or vice versa, because you say, oh, God is the character in the Bible who is not understood. Like people don't understand who God is and God's not like you, but you don't understand that. And so that becomes the person or the character that Joy can best relate to as a trans person. I would love for you to talk about where you saw some of those connections where it's actually God is the character that speaks to you the most as a new parent or as a new mother. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the loss that I, I think in us not having momentaries before is that God becomes in the male oriented world of commentary. God is someone who's perfect and omniscient and knows everything. And, and there's no point in relating to God because God is so unlike us that, God is not one of the characters that we should be mapping ourselves onto. But but your book opened up God as a character that we can map ourselves onto. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that experience and some of those examples. Yeah, well, first, I feel like I just have to shout out Liana Fink's incredible new graphic novel where she retells the Torah with a female God. 
which really resonates with a lot of what you're asking, a lot of what I think about as well. You know, it's funny, I think in part because a lot of my Jewish education work is um, tutoring B'nai Mitzvah students who are not part of a synagogue. So I do this sort of kind of off-grid start to finish preparation. I generally officiate the ceremonies as well. And I think because of that, I'm constantly encountering the character of God in these Torah portions with 12-year-olds and not encountering it perfect. I, I think I very much don't read the character of God through any kind of lens of of perfection because front and center to me is it's kind of you know sitting with a 12 year old who's saying wait god you know killed all those people for making a bad decision you know like god's commanding the israelites to kill all these people because the israelites are going to move into the land and just having a lot of ethical problems with the character of god and so i think in that way <laughs> i may find god more more relatable you know just that kind of the intensity, the rage that I think, I mean, I think the word you know, zealous is really rage. Like, I think that's the human version of it is um, getting extremely angry at, about something and sometimes moderating that in a healthy way and sometimes messing up and just letting it out in an actually way that traumatizes people around you. So that's not necessarily the version of the divine that I have the most personal practitioner relationship as a as a person of faith but it is a character that i'm constantly struggling with and i think it is part of my conception of the the divine essentially includes that complexity and i think in a way that that was comforting to me when i began to inhabit the very complex experience of motherhood which i had always imagined from the outside to be exclusively feelings of nurture and maybe occasional impatience. So I had these projections of what it would feel like. And then when I entered the experience and as I write in the book, you know, I did feel all of the joy and all of the incredible connection and, and gratitude. And I happen to be a person who really needs sleep to function. So like, I, I'm, I like a lot of sleep. <laughs> so really early on, I also found myself kind of like pushed to my own emotional limits, even just physically, not even to mention, you know, hormonal changes, but then also the emotional demands of um, changing identity, right? And um, caring for another being for the first time, all those things. So I very naturally related to the imperfect character of God that we receive in our Torah. And I think that was, I don't know if I would have said this at the time, but I think it was actually comforting to me to feel that this was actually our model of a parent. And I think I, I felt that in myself, you know, I think that a lot of the work of being a parent in my personal experience has been becoming more and more skillful at managing the whole range of emotions, challenging and overwhelmingly positive that are evoked by the intense intimacy and kind of animal connection of this relationship. And it does feel very resonant with that character of God to me. Yeah, and no, just to reinforce what you're saying, I mean, the, one of the things that struck me the most was just this idea that look at it from God's perspective. Like after God created humanity, God's life got a lot different and was not necessarily always for the better. And you know, not, not to sort of reinforce what Lex was talking about, like not that not that you go only to dark places, but I appreciated that you name that both for parents and also for God. Yeah. Um. So. I want to talk about some specific stories, and I, I want to not do it as spoilers. So the best way to not spoil a thing is to just start from the beginning, because you're like allow like trailers. You know, they give you stuff from the first few minutes of the movie or whatever. So that's what we're gonna do. For some reason, of all the stories, I really vibed with the first one. Maybe that's why <laughs> I put it first. It takes place partially on an airplane. There was actually, an, there were some other moments related to airplanes that I thought were really profound too. <laughs> anyway, your first story I thought was amazing because it encapsulates some humor and some challenge, but also some real joy and fun. And so I'd love to hear out loud that first story involving a plane and some bodily fluids. <laughs> not my bodily fluids. Not, sorry, bodily fluids. Sorry. <laughs> but not, I wanted to hear you tell the story. I was not saying the bodily fluids Please were from you. Please leave that in. Not. Please leave that in. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And I will actually frame this story by saying I was close to finishing the book and I sat down at dinner and I said, 
uh, kids. I don't know if you know this, but I'm writing a book about being a mom. Is there anything about our story of the family that you'd like to share and like make sure that it gets in there? And my um, older daughter, Sylvia, said, oh, yeah, you have to tell the story about the time I threw up on dad's lap in the airplane. <laughs> so by her request, I actually opened the book with um, the story of how when she was quite young and, you know, we moved across the country when she was a baby, which I think is partially <laughs> responsible for a, a lot of the sadness in the book, because I really took that move very hard. And so there were a lot of planes. And um, one of the things we learned early on is that babies tend to cry a lot because of ear issues with the air pressure changes that take off and landing. And so it's really helpful if a baby is nursing or drinking from a bottle during those times. And so um, we had recently transitioned from you know breast milk and formula to cow's milk. And Sylvia was kind of newly one, I think, which is around when that happens. And she was really into milk. <laughs> really into cow's milk. And so she just sucked down a whole bottle as we were taking off. And we're like, well, we have a second bottle and we're not all the way up yet. So we gave her a second bottle, just sucked it down, like very, very happy. And then right as we kind of got in the air, she like looked, turned, you know, gave us a big smile and then threw up all this milk <laughs> right onto my husband Aaron's lap, which slowly soaked in and, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't get up and change yet because you weren't allowed to get out of your seat because we were still kind of in the second half of takeoff. And uh, we learned an important lesson then, which was always bring a change of clothes, not only for the baby, but for the adults when you're on a plane. <laughs> and so he kind of got through this, you know, very uncomfortable, wet uh, three hour flight. And then we had a plane change to get to the rest of the way across the country. And so I was holding Sylvia and poor Aaron with his like soaking wet <laughs> pants um, was heading into the bathroom to kind of try to clean himself up. And he went into the family bathroom because, you know, he needed to like actually take off his pants and wash them out. And it, it wasn't going to be easy in, a, in the general um, bathroom. And so there was one of those like individual kind of family bathrooms. And as he went in, this young woman walking by looked at him and just gave him this incredibly dirty look and said, that's a family bathroom. Because <laughs> I wasn't standing right with him with the baby. And he just kind of like shook his head and then went in and, and dealt with it. But there's some significant physical discomfort involved in poor Aaron sitting for three and a half hours with, you know, that amount of liquid soaking into his pants. And there was also just kind of the humor that we all, I mean, it was just also funny. And, and then the kind of like misreading of the single appearing guy walking into a family bathroom must be just a total douche. You know, there's no way he could be actually dealing with the fact that he is a dad. And because of that, he's in this compromised situation with his pants, you know. And then the final part is like that we have told this story as a family so many times and it starts to gather its own energy. And it, I think it becomes a ritual way of showing love for each other to, you know, Sylvia is now 10. So like this story has had different meanings over the years. And the fact that it becomes can, a Parsha, it, it becomes, it becomes it does, a Torah yeah. portion. Yeah. Just, and that's what it is in your book. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So thanks for thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> so on this podcast, I have... And also in every single corner of my life, my most common spiel in front of a room full of people is that I talk about my favorite song of all time called Closing Time by Semisonic. And the reason it's my favorite song is because the entire thing is a double entendre. And Dan Wilson, who's the name of the songwriter, he talks about how every single line is meant to work its meaning works for both the closing of a bar at the end of the night and the birthing of a human of a baby into the world so it starts with open all the doors and let you out into the world which like literally open up the doors at the end of the night to let people go out into like the rest of their life they're kicked out of the bar that's one side of it and open a literal door uh like a, a physical bodily door for a baby to depart through that door and enter into the world. That's the beginning. And then every single line of the entire song, it it does that same thing. But the refrain of it or the, the ongoing idea is that every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And you used similar terminology in your book. I just found it really poetic. Once again, in the context of Torah, I, I kept on flashing to the fact that on Simchat Torah, on the holiday where you mark these five books, the end of it is the beginning. Like you end the book of Deuteronomy, the last book, and then immediately you start up again in Genesis. 
And I felt like you were conveying that in different ways that like when you have a baby, it's a beginning, obviously, but it is also an ending. I I clearly was very surprised by the experience of internal experience of being a parent and of that transition. I don't know if anyone could have done anything to prepare me better. You know, I, I often hear people say, why didn't anyone tell me? And I think the truth is like some things just have to be lived to be understood. And I think this is one of them. You know, in getting ready to have a baby, it felt to me like such a pure beginning, just the pure essence of the energy of beginnings, you know, that was all I felt. And, and um, you know, some fear of what happens if something goes wrong. And that was the only way that the, the sense of endings would have even come up at all in my mind. And then when I had this beautiful, thankfully healthy baby, I experienced, I would say, two simultaneous endings that were really deep and intense. And and one was that my life as I had known it was over. And it really felt like a, a death of my previous self. And I just hadn't thought of that. I thought, oh, I'm going to become a mother. It's going to be this new form of myself that's going to be birthed. And that it was so true. And of course, you don't just add on. You know, it's like something has to also give way. And I may always carry that younger self inside me or that previous version of life inside me. But it really was sort of, you know, in other ways, kind of washed away by this new version of life that had come. And so that was one manifestation of endings. And the other was that having this tiny infant, it was so easy to see the similarities between a very, very old person and a very, very young person, semi-bald, <laughs> wrinkly, absolutely dependent, absolutely beloved, you know, I mean, like just evoking so much love and compassion and care. The state of um, having just crossed over from this other place and not having any tools for this place yet. And it's so resonant with kind of extreme old age. So that I also felt, wow, like my mother is this child's grandmother. And I remember how old my grandmother seemed when I was little. But my mother doesn't seem that old to me because I've grown up, grown old with her, essentially, you know, and suddenly just seeing kind of generations and how they come and go and how this moment of birth also literally engenders an eventual death. Again, may it be very, very, very far in the future, but every birth creates a death, right? And I was just, you know, in a way, maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised that I was having all these thoughts and feelings because it is a little bit normal for me to go into those spaces because I'm a poet, but I was not expecting them to be so upfront and so kind of literal. And I kind of felt like I was in this liminal space for a while of the boundary between life and death or life and pre-life being so thin that, you know, you cross over in a day and I was still so close to that day. And, and my, my body was, it took a while to heal and recover from that transition. And there was something that felt very heightened and sacred and kind of a little too much sometimes, but also I could tell that there was like a, a vision in that moment that was probably not going to last forever, but it felt very clear during during that transition time. I was kind of curious how the experience has been for you to put together this long gestating book, you know, which well has played which, Jan with gestating. We gotta give that a nice little snaps. Well, you, <laughs> you you wrote the original essays that became the book about a decade ago. And I'm wondering what the experience has been like for you of going back to those essays, how much you changed them or modified them. But I'm also interested in this process of how something moves from being wisdom to being a text. And mm -hmm. you're somebody who for many years has been an interpreter of texts. And I'm just wondering what it's like to be the creator of a text, which in some ways is also interpreting a previous text. And if, if maybe that gives us new insight on on the whole project that we're involved with, you know, what what is the Torah, you know, but some attempt by some previous generation to take a bunch of essays that were written previously and shape them into some kind of coherent narrative. And 
maybe it's really about what happens to it after that that's the crux of it. I believe that deeply. I mean, I think that whether or not we are writing books or just living our lives, <laughs> I think we are constantly rewriting stories and reinterpreting, whether it's biblical stories or things we heard about our family growing up or stories that happened to us in elementary school that then 30 years later we see through a new lens, you know, like, or realize something about our, our identity that we didn't know before. And suddenly we start to reread everything that came before and say, oh, that's why that happened. Or that's why I was so upset about that. Or that's why I loved that so much. You know, one of the things I love most about Judaism is that permission and indeed encouragement to collaboratively co-create the tradition. And it makes sense to me. I mean, it's like a family lineage. It's like, unless, you know, a family lineage continues while, you know, whether it's spiritual lineage or genetic, however you want to see it, but like, essentially it's, it's a living thing, right? Like the next generation has to be alive, making their mistakes, making their interpretations, create, making meaning and making sense out of things for culture to continue. And I see all of us in that tradition, in that path, in that line, in that chain. I really see myself that way as a teacher. And I also see myself that way as, as an artist and as a writer. And so interestingly, I feel like this to me does not feel that different from my, you know, songs about biblical women, from my Girls in Trouble project, or even a lot of my poems in my first two books of poetry are reinterpreting Jewish texts or occasionally Buddhist texts or, or things that happen to me, you know. So this feels to me that even though it takes the form of personal essays and it's really centered around parenting and maybe it's more explicit about Torah teaching than some of my other work, it really does feel like it's coming from the same place as I try to understand and make sense out of the received stories, wisdom, and traditions that I've been given and then how they might guide me and walk with me forward. And that is an organic, ever-changing process. And so I, I guess I see this book as part of that process. As far as I can remember, there either haven't been any other or there have been very few other guests on our podcast who I would term a triple threat in the sense that they have like published in a serious way something that is written in this case, a book. Um, you've also published lots of poems. Um, oral Torah, oral things. So Girls in Trouble, your albums, all of your songs. Um, and visual Torah, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. uh, like you have a new film, Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. Um, and I'm curious to hear, I mean, A, you've there's been overlapping time periods, right? Like part of the time that you've spent on Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, this film, you've also been working on this book. And you've also been performing music. Like, I can't really imagine. I, I live in audio land pretty, pretty much exclusively. Like, I, I, we do podcasts. And I'm not publishing vi videos. I'm not doing anything deep on that front. You're hopping from audio to video to written text. And I'm kind of in awe. Like, I don't know how one does that. And so I guess I'm curious to hear a little about that experience. I tend to find that when I talk to artists or people that are working on two projects at once, that there tends to be something, even in weird cases that, oh, that don't yeah. seem related, there tends to be something related. So I'm curious what that something might be. I barely distinguish in some way between, I mean, I feel like everything comes from this root. And then by the time it manifests out into the world, it can look so different, like an art film and a parenting book, you know, but really, like you said, I'm generally creating them all simultaneously. And it's all Torah, you know, it, Torah in the way that everything that everyone creates is Torah. I mean, it's all teaching and it's all um, learning and trying to make beauty out of what we're given. It's almost humorous to me how similar they seem because I know how differently they manifest. But actually, the, the book, my book, Even God Had Bad Parenting Days, and my film, A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, literally are being released on the same day. <laughs> so there is some kind of like karmic thing. They're twins. Um, they're they're twins. fraternal twins. They're not identical twins. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, okay. One thing I just have to kind of um, clarify is that I, you know, I love visual art. And I had this amazing painting teacher in high school and spent a lot of time thinking very seriously about oil painting. Um, but I did not create the visual world of the film. And, you know, I have a director whose name is very similar to mine, but she's not me. 
and her name's Alicia J. Rose. And so she is a director photographer. I was not really did not, you know, visually it's not, I can't really claim much um, ownership over it. I had some, some ideas for scenes and things like that, but my collaborator, Alicia was really the visual mastermind. So I do not identify as a visual artist, um, but I have these separate trainings that happen kind of concurrently as a writer and as a musician. I was just lucky enough to be practicing them separately, kind of the way someone might play two separate sports. You know, they were definitely drawing on similar parts of my mind and similar kind of strategies for revision and tolerating rejection and <laughs> all these things. And then really what happened was I, then I fell in love with Jewish texts and kind of added being a J Jewish educator on. And my experience is that when I create a book or a film or a song or a theater piece or craft a lesson or a class, it really is almost the same process in the ways that matter, where for me, it's dropping down into the reality of what is and what feels interesting and meaningful and like very alive to me. I'm not really interested in like theoretical considerations. I'm interested in like, how can new and ancient ideas help me understand those things? And how can I make beauty out of it? So I want to talk more about your wonderful book. And I specifically want to go to the title because that's what I always do with anything is talk about titles and names. And the question I have is not about the you, your husband, or your children characters. It's about the God character. Mm -hmm. And um, your title is Even God Had Bad Parenting Days. And I looked at that and I sort of went into thought for a second. And I was like, yeah, like Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, some Saturdays, and a lot of Sundays. I was like, most of God's days, at least God the character in the Torah, most of them are, I think bad parenting days. And now I, I that's not to say that I disagree with what you said before about how there's ways that, that parents can see themselves in God and there's ways that God's character in the story is relatable. And if I become a parent, certain parental elements of God might resonate with me more. Where I am right now, if God is a parent figure and if humanity is in the role of children, I can point to a lot of instances of God basically doing child sacrifice. <laughs> um, like if that's the roles, then when God smites people, that's kind of child sacrifice. I can point to other moments where I think just less fully evilly, God still has a rough time of it. <laughs> and you actually, I'm bringing this up, not because I think you're going to fully disagree with me, but because your book actually names that too. There's parts where you name that God in the title and in the stories has a rough go of it. And so there's even God has bad parenting days. And then there's like, God especially has bad parenting yeah. days. It's actually two different statements. And even yeah. God has bad parenting days implies that God is generally rocking and rolling, but has an occasional off moment. And basically, I'm curious how you would describe the inspiration for the title and what you're getting at there. Yes. A novelist friend of mine commented when I first posted a picture of the book with its title, and I think she just commented in all caps, especially God. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yes, touche. You know, the title comes from a title of an essay, which comes from a line within the essay. So it's not like I sat down and that, that's how I like to find my title. So I didn't, I didn't sit down and say, what shall I call this collection of essays? I thought, what is in it that actually contains a gesture towards the vibe of the book? That I, you know, I didn't put my finger on this before, but I think part of what happened to me when I became a parent was that I did develop this compassion for the God character and for how impossibly hard it is to be the one in power and the one in control, especially when you're imperfect, which we are and which we being made in God's image, I take that to mean God, of course, would be as well. And in the same way that looking back, it's it's so much easier to sometimes remember some of the mistakes that were made in raising us by our parents than necessarily to see every little way that they kind of showed up for us day after day. It's so interesting because I kind of feel that in the way that we think about God in the Torah. It's like if, if God is supposed to be infinite compassion all the time, perfection, then God's doing a pretty terrible job. But mm -hmm. if God is supposed to be a complex 
divinity which contains multitudes just like we do, then I think it's actually easy to overlook all of the compassion and caretaking that happens. You know, we think, oh, so God's choosing Moses and saying, okay, Moses, you're going to lead the Israelites. And the amount of kind of mentorship, I mean, Moses is like pushing back, like, no, I don't want to, it's not, I'm not right for it. Even just in that interaction, like as a parent, I'm thinking like, ah, oh, how frustrating. You know, you're like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm in charge. I see you, you're the best person to do this. So like, you're really gonna like push back against that. You know, like that's really your response is not like, great, let me help. You've been doing everything. How can I help? <laughs> no, it's like, I don't want to pick up my ch- shoes off the floor or whatever, you know. And Wait, so to- did you do that on purpose? Because the first thing Moses does when he when he meets God is takes off his shoes. And that's <laughs> no, the first I thing God not. tells him to do is to take off his shoes. That's incredible. <laughs> that is so funny. That's one of our go-to chores is like organize the shoe racks. I think that's what I thought of it. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting to me how if we assume a human style neutral kind of compromised God and look back at like, wow, God like created the world and then like did all this stuff. and was like, don't eat that. Just you can do anything. Just don't eat that. And then that's what they did. And of course, as a human and, you know, a, a feminist and someone who's into complexity, I'm like, great, eat it, you know, please. But, but <laughs> switching to the other point of view, wow, like how much unappreciated patience and nurture is there in the Torah if you kind of look at it from that perspective? And so that's a little bit contained in the title. I mean, even the way that I make my kids say something, it sounds mean make them, but we have this tradition of saying something they're grateful for every night before we sing the Shema, which is a little bedtime prayer. And, um, you know, there are nights when they're in a bad mood or had a bad evening or whatever. And they're like, I don't want to say something I'm grateful for right now. I'm not grateful for anything. And I'm like, well, we're just, you know, it can be the smallest thing in the world. It can be the poster on your wall. It can be your nightlight. But like, I want you to say one thing. And I feel like, that's how we are as humans. It's like, well, I'm upset about this thing. So all of these like blessings that are just flowing around me kind of like disappear. And sometimes I feel like if we're going to relate to God in that kind of, you know, anthropomorphized way of like God does kind things and God does harsh things. um, Yeah, I think it's really easy to overlook the kindness. It's funny, like as you were talking, I was thinking about how if somebody or somebody, one of my children were to write a book about me, there would be a lot of bad parenting days because that's where the drama is, right? I mean, it's it's not that there's so many bad parenting days. It's like, what are you going to write the book about? Like all the all the lunches you made. You made so many lunches. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the 350 days a year where I just sort of said, hey, how was your day at school? And they said, uh, fine. And that was kind of it. I mean, that's not bad parenting. It's not good parenting. It's just is, right? <laughs> but like the couple of days where I really lost it, like those would be the the main points of the drama. There would be probably here and there a little story about some nice thing that I did to kind of uh, show the whole picture. It wasn't all bad. <laughs> but the problem feels to me at that point is like sometime later, somebody digs up that book and decides that this Dan character has to be read as always good. Then, you know, for a thousand years, we begin to read the book through this lens, which could not have been, for many reasons, including that it would just be a boring book, it could not have been the original motivation, the original ideas of why this book was put together. And as a result, whatever the original wisdom that those who put the book together were trying to convey is completely lost. And then you may, again, I mean, I guess I come back to the power of the momentary to discover what was always there and then tap into that wisdom in in a way that really means that the book was there so that we could learn from God's failures. Not to judge God for God's failures, but to learn from God's failures and also, like you say, have compassion for God as well. And it feels to me like re-understood that way I would like to go through the entire Torah as to some extent you do in your book and and mine those stories again to see what can we learn from God's less good parenting days and to assume that that actually was the intent of the author. I kind of went back and forth with my editor at Berman House a little bit because she was like, do you want it to be even God has or even God had? And I was pretty firm on, I want even God had (laughs) to be the title because it's the biblical God that I'm talking about. And like, I, you know, the God that I have a personal relationship with in my own spirituality is not going to be 
a judgmental asshole in the way that the God character in the Torah can be. And that those to me are kind of two distinct things. Um, and yet at the same time, when I imagine living thousands of years ago before a lot of, you know, before the science that we have now and just experiencing like the f- seemingly random forces of nature, sickness, like that sometimes manifest as a great blessing and sometimes manifest as something terrible out of nowhere, I can also imagine in my own mind that like maybe for them, it was actually reflecting the way that they were experiencing the world around them. And now we have different ways of understanding why these kinds of things happen, whether it's chance or we have scientific understandings of weather patterns or whatever it is. And so maybe that comes back to your idea of us rewriting and reinterpreting. So I, I think for me, I would push back a little bit against like, I don't know what the original intent was, but I know how I need to read these stories and how I need to think of God, if God's going to be a God worth wrestling with. The way you're talking about sort of inhabiting God's perspective and how one thing that you've gained as a parent is the ability or is a sense of compassion for the God character in the story who has all this responsibility, who is the one in charge and humanity is sort of in that role of child. I'm really fascinated by that. And it's pointing, I think, to I don't want to speak overly generalized, but I think to basically a real distinction between what Jews tend to do and what Christians tend to do with God. Like, it is a really normal, typical thing for a Christian to say, huh, what would Jesus do? Part of that is like in Christianity, there is this sense that God took on a human form in this literal sense, or for some of them in a less literal sense, but in some kind of sense. And you have examples of what that God human did. And then you can strive to be like that. Jewishly, we really do have this stark sense that whatever God is, it isn't human. And I think part of that is because we live in a world where Christianity is so dominant and we're kind of, we are being different from that. We are expressing that we are not the same. And I think there's a lot of perks to that. I mean, I'm a pantheist. Like For me, it's very important for God actually not to be in a person role. And one of my struggles, not not with your book necessarily, but with, in general, God as parent or God as king or God as any Anything that has a pronoun or a a noun is that that's not really what my conception of God is. But might we actually learn something from people in the world who do spend their days asking like, huh, what does God do? And I don't mean that we should, I'm not saying we should be like right-wing Christians that are maybe the most, the the group doing that the most frequently. What I do mean is, might there be a te- might there be a more generalizable teaching from your experience? I mean, you talk about it as just your personal experience. You gain the sense of compassion for God. Might that actually be sort of a should statement that we might, as a Jewish community, maybe maybe that's a vitamin we're a little bit deficient in as mm. Jews that we can learn from others. And by the way, when I say vitamin, I'm quoting Zalm in Chapter Salome, who talked about different spiritual groups having vitamins, mm. but. Is playing God. I mean, when you tell people that you're you're playing God, you're it's an insult, right? Like, but I actually hear from you that we might gain something in trying to play God and trying to inhabit the perspective of maybe lowercase G God, that character in the Bible. Yeah, and I mean, when I think about our fractal relationship to God, I think about the line from Genesis that says that we're made in the image of God. So that's kind of the biblical source that I go back to. And then I think about our liturgical tradition in which so many prayers, you know, including Evinu Malkenu, like one of the great prayers of the High Holy Days where, um, you know, in a very sexist <laughs> way saying our father, our king, but I like to extrapolate out from that um, beyond ideas of gender and, and forms of power. But, you know, the idea of God as a, a parent who can be accessed through their love, essentially, you know, and through through direct petition because they created us and love us. When I hear your question, I I kind of, my brain just reverts kind of to those frameworks within the, the Jewish tradition. I think it's really radical to say that we're made in the image of God. We are pretty godlike when we give life um, or become fully responsible for taking care of a completely helpless human. And maybe God's made in our image, you know, I mean, maybe I think that's probably maybe a more literal way of looking at it that I think I kind of share with you a a sense that the 
the deepest experience of God is something that's kind of beyond any metaphor or form. But maybe if if we made God in our image in the Torah, that gave us a way to have a kind of avatar for speaking to a power that's beyond the ability for us to imagine. When I asked one of my early questions, I mentioned that this strikes me as like a really cool way of orienting to Torah where you're not going like Torah portion by Torah portion exactly, but you're thinking broadly about how to apply the five book journey from the beginning of the creation of the world through in Egypt and the desert, like broadly speaking, some parallels to one particular realm. And in your case, it's parenting. Do you have visions in your dream world if other people that are not you were to write a book with a similar framework, but not about parenting, about something else? Like, do you have particular realms that you'd love to see a Torah commentary, like a momentary, but that's not about momming or parenting yes. that maybe might exist? Yes. Well, I'm really interested in self-love and self-acceptance and self-compassion right now. You know, accepting myself, I'll say, as I am. And not to the exclusion of caring about other people, obviously, but it feels like a very radical goal to give myself permission to be who I am, even if that sometimes doesn't line up with who other people want me to be or what other people want me to want. And I would love to see <laughs> a kind of therapeutic journey towards self-love reading of the five books of Moses from the very beginning to the promised land. Thank you so much, Alicia Dorabins, for joining us. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We encourage you to head to Google, type in a cottage for Bernie Madoff. You can find it on all the different streaming services. There's too many options to list them all, but it's an Apple, it's on Amazon, it's all over the place. Pick your favorite and definitely watch. It is so, so awesome. And of course, also purchase Alicia Joe Rabin's new book. It's pretty cool to have a film release and a book on the same day. Um, and that was earlier this week. So check out one of them, both of them, whatever works. You can find all of that in the show notes for this episode. To close things out fully, uh, we want to encourage you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. Third, you can email us at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. And one thing we always deeply appreciate is if you are able to financially support us, which you can do via JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. 16.